Ben Easter, and you're listening to the Shift to Freedom podcast, the podcast that gives you the mindsets, strategies, tips, and tricks to live your freedom and love your life. If you're here, I suspect that you have a total badass inside you, but chances are that you haven't let it play full out yet. Maybe you've been told not to, that it's too much. Maybe you've been worried about what other people will think, or maybe you just haven't made the space to shine. If any of that sounds familiar, you've come to the right place. Each week, my co-hosts and I will be exposing the lies that keep that badass chained and, more importantly, sharing the tools to help you break free and share that most authentic you with the world. So, if you want more freedom, possibility, or courage, then I'd invite you to take a deep breath, get curious, and listen carefully for your shift to freedom. Hey there, freedom seekers. Ever wonder about the hero that lives inside of you, ready to conquer the business world? Well, if you've been listening to our show for a while, then you know that we love exploring hero myths and using them to better understand our own heroic journeys. I wanted to make these stories even more actionable for you, so we built a way for you to uncover your business superpowers, avoid potential pitfalls, and see your entrepreneurial journey in a whole new light. Ready to discover your business owner hero type? Check out the show notes or head over to lucidshiftcoaching.com forward slash quiz to take our free quiz and learn which heroic energy you embody in your business. It only takes a few minutes and it's free. Your heroic journey awaits. Hey there, listener. As you may have heard, we are giving the Shift to Freedom podcast a facelift. You might be able to hear the drills, saws, and jackhammers in the background right now as we speak. But meanwhile, while we are doing that to focus on delivering ever more value for you, the personal development work does not have to stop around here. So um, we are polishing some of our previously used most valuable podcast episodes, the ones we've got the best feedback on, the ones that have been the most valuable for listeners in the past. And that is what we are presenting to you and curating to you today. So I hope you enjoy the refresher course on some of the most valuable topics that we've ever talked about. Enjoy your listen and have a great one. Welcome back to the Shape of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Ben Easter, and I have my beautiful co-host, my wife, my love, my life, Paige Easter with me here. Today, we are going to be talking about uh, choosing empowering language. Paige, you want to intro us? Yeah. So throughout the coaching we've been doing with our clients, we've kind of cultivated this list of different language patterns that are super common vernacular. We hear them all the time. They sound really normal. And they are just really simple ways that when we use them, we can kind of subtly, maybe even a subconscious way, uh, disempower ourselves a little bit. So we've got here a list of seven. And what I'd love to do is just go through them one at a time with you. Great. And I like to um, set a little bit of context for this because it's okay to use whatever language you're using. The reason that we, we listen for these and that we want to bring these to your attention in order to help you shift to freedom is because this language tends to be the tip of a belief iceberg. So there's some belief that we're holding, some model of reality that we're holding. And this language just points to it. It just points a finger that that something's going on under here. And we'll, we'll talk about why that is with the individual use cases of the language. Uh, it's worth mentioning that language is very, very important. So it's, it's not that I'm trying to dismiss the, the vast importance of language. It's that I'm pointing out that these things are indicating something deeper than just language usage. Our language is so important because it is how we conceptualize the world. Words are concepts, and that's like literally how we make a schema of what's existing around us. And so the way that we describe our reality is in the very direct, very real way. It is how we create, how we make real our reality. Uh, say that, that reality is objective, or, or rather that there is no objective reality. But it is to say that before I told you to pay attention to your tailbone, 
you probably weren't noticing it, uh, but I drew your attention to it with the word tailbone and you have a concept for that. And so that's that's what we're doing here really was, was we're picking language that helps empower us. It helps us to be more resourceful, to access more of our, our inner workings. Does that make sense, Paige? Yeah, totally. I think that it can just use this whole conversation as a jumping point for people to kind of assess their own language and notice when they use certain words, what might be going on beneath the surface that they might not have been aware of. Totally. And will we go through the words, we'll also give alternative ways of saying the thing that you're trying to express that might be a little bit more resourceful or a little bit more empowering. Uh, and these words are the ones that we're really on the lookout for just because they're going to be our clues. Yeah. The first one I have on my list is good, bad, slash, right, wrong. Okay, great. Uh, good, bad, right, wrong. This one is, um, it's really important, I think, for us to understand that good, bad, right, wrong, they have some sort of objective tone as though there's somewhere we could go, some you know book we could look at or some tablet that something's written on that would tell us what good or bad or right or wrong is in the world. And the thing is, we just don't have any access to that. We have what we believe, like you might have a religious tradition, for instance, that tells you all about what good and bad, right and wrong are, or a moral code or a legal code or something that, that would tell you those things. And at the end of the day, you have to choose which ones of those you're going to focus on, which ones you're going to sort of give credence to, belief to. That's what credence means. So you'll be determining uh, your own sense of good, bad, right, wrong. So what I really think is happening here is we're talking about our values. Does that line up with how you think about it too, Peggy? Yeah. Well, I also think that there's kind of an assumption around like what we say, good and bad. And it's like, well, doesn't everybody think that? Like society says this is bad or like the right way to do something, the right way to have a relationship, the right way to have a business, that society says that. And at some point, maybe we bought in that like what society says is what is right uh, without taking into consideration like what is important to us, like what is valuable to us in the world. Uh, that's kind of how I see it come up a lot. Yeah. And another way of saying this is that we sort of the arbiter of what's important to us. Like only we know our goals. Okay. And so any like good or bad, that's only insofar as we have some goal. You know what I mean? So it's good to make your bed in the morning in this case. Yeah. Um, it's good to make your bed in the morning. Is it true? No. I mean, if you want an ordered life and an ordered bedroom, then that sounds like it would be an alignment for you, right? So this is the language that I advise is instead of good or bad, right or wrong, instead we want it's useful for me to say, mm -hmm. I want that thing or I don't want that thing. That thing is an alignment mm -hmm. for me or it's not an alignment for me. <laughs> and instead of good or bad, we say, you know, that's toward my end or away from my end, that sort of thing. So that's kind of an example that I like to use when I'm talking about like right and wrong. I was in a conversation once with somebody who was saying about going on this camping trip with their wife and they were like, I know I'm right. When you get back from camping, you unroll the sleeping bags so that they can last because if you keep them all crumbled up, they deteriorate faster and they don't last as long. I, said, I know that I'm right. And he was like really digging his heels on and and I was like, I wanted to poke holes in this for him because it seemed like it was causing conflict. And so I was like, well, that's just assuming that the most important thing is that the sleeping bags have longevity. That doesn't take into account that some people don't like to unpack when they get back from a long trip. 
or that when the sleeping bags are unfold, they take up a lot of space. And so I think that when we hear language like good, bad, right, wrong, it is always an opportunity to stop and question, well, based on what? Like, what is the important thing? What are the values that are at stake that get compromised? And like, it's like the, the value being at stake and being compromised is the thing that's bad. And it is really useful to make that explicit and talk about what is it that we're trying to accomplish instead of kind of just taking it for granted and assuming, yeah, it is good or it is bad because somebody said so. Yeah, like everybody else is bought into the same thing. Because in this situation, maybe uh, maybe it is more important to get some sleep. We've got a, you know, I, I'm thinking of an example like, well, maybe I've got an early morning meeting and we got back from camping late. And so it's actually more important for me to jump in bed right now and go to sleep than it is to unroll the sleeping bags. <laughs> there might be a dispute about that. We might have a difference in opinion about which which value is more important, rest for our meeting tomorrow or the longevity of the sleeping bags. And and that's something that reasonable adults can have conversation about. And when we say good or bad, what we're doing is we're like denying the opportunity to have that kind of conversation. Because again, we're putting some sort of objective name on the whatever the thing is that we're calling good or bad. Also, I, I just want to point out with this one with good or bad, we use this a lot, too, when we're describing how we want somebody else to do other things, like do a good job or, you know, this might be in a job description or something like that. And and it's really useful to double click on what good means. And even for yourself, if you find yourself using the language of good a lot, uh, this can be sort of a moving goalpost because, uh, you know, there's sometimes this idea that it's never good enough. And that is because we didn't outline or define what good meant for us in the first place. So I think it's really useful if you if you find yourself using good, especially in a work context or in a in a context where you find yourself being burned out, um, then double click on what good actually means and lay yourself out some criteria. And when you're looking for criteria, look for things that could be proven in a court of law, like, you know, facts that exist out in the world that, that everybody who saw it would agree rather than good, which is an opinion. You know, two people could look at the same thing and think. One thing is really good and one thing is really bad. That's sort of thing. So, so that's good, bad, right, wrong. What is next? Well, I love this one. I think that it's probably the one that we spend the most time talking about in just like our social interactions. It's related. Uh, and there's four of them. I like to call them the four sisters. Uh, it's should, need to, have to, and gotta. Also must if you were, or ought if you're feeling very British. Uh, all of those serve kind of the same purpose. And th this is really closely related to the good, bad, right, wrong thing as well. Uh, what we're doing when we're using the word should is we are assuming some end. Okay, so the example that I always talk about with people is breathing. Like, you should breathe. Well, I mean, only if you want to stay alive. If you don't want to stay alive, actually, breathing is pretty counterproductive. And that's actually a choice that somebody gets to make about their life, whether or not they want to stay alive. So be on the lookout for at any time we hear the should word. Okay, get curious. What? So that what should do this so that what for the sake of what, what, what end somebody making an assumption about for you, you should really read that book. Well, why? What do you mean? What will I get out of that book? According to what criteria should I read that book? What end do you think I have? The way that I hear this one a lot is like people create like lists of to do's and they're like, oh, I should do this and I got to do this and I have to do this and I have and it's like, it seems like what happens the way I witness it is that it creates this long list of to-dos without stopping to consider well, what is the benefit on the other side of it. And then I also see people kind of take that list of to-dos and it kind of ends up being a never-ending list with no end. 
And it seems like there's this never-ending list of tasks of trying to get to be something, trying to have some kind of experience in the world. And it seems like a lot of times it comes down to like enoughness. Like I can be good once I've done all of these things. I'm curious if you see it that way too. Yeah. And that's, I was, well, I was saying goodness and should, or they're pretty closely related. We could pretty probably close, yeah. good, bad, and right, wrong into the same bucket in a way, but they're, I think they're different enough use cases that it's okay to separate them out. I think this one is worth also talking about our motivation and how motivation works for humans and drive the surprising truth about what motivates us. It's about um, these kind of three intrinsic motivators that humans have, A and B, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. We, you know, we like to be in charge of our lives. We like to be good at things and we like to um, good at things. We like to be effective at things. Oh, that was one of the other words for good. And we like to be contributing to something larger than ourselves, purpose. And so the interesting thing about should is what what it does is when we hear that word, even when we're saying it to ourselves, this is really interesting, all of a sudden it takes away our autonomy. And what's funny is we use the word to motivate ourselves. We say we should do that thing. Oh, I should be working out. Gosh, that's that's really, you know, I'm, I'm really dropping the ball. I should be working out. As though like saying that to my thought is going to make me motivated for for doing whatever the thing is that I'm going to be doing. And it doesn't work. It actually works the exact opposite because it's it's undermining our autonomy. And so even though we're saying it in order to motivate ourselves, we're actually winding up less motivated than we were if we didn't say it in the first place. So I think that's really interesting. Can you make that a little bit more explicit? Like, what's how do we get from the word should to taking away our autonomy? Because should is this obligatory language. Need to, have to, should, must, ought to, you know, these gotta, these are these are words that um, when we use them, we're trying to direct somebody's actions in the world, even if that person is ourselves. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. I'm trying to like force in some kind of directional action or something like that. And so that's how it takes away our autonomy. It's like saying there's this thing and it's obligation for you to do it. And that's real part of the problem, I think, is that we have now there not only is there the thing, but there's like this burden of obligation that we have that we feel to to do it, to do whatever the thing is. I see clearly need to and have to as like obligatory, but it seems like there's not the option to not do those things. I guess I just don't see it quite as explicitly with should. Need to, have to, should. They're all serving like a similar filtering process in the world mm. this is a thing that necessarily has to happen and if it doesn't something bad or unacceptable is on the other side of it yeah maybe Let, let's try it this way you have an infinite amount of possibilities and then as soon as we utter the word should or shouldn't our possibilities get smaller so we we have autonomy we have freedom of choice about how we operate in the world and then someone, including ourselves, utters the word should or shouldn't or need or have to or must or whatever. And then all of these options that we have now narrow. They become limited somehow in some way. Mm. But what if they say should like multiple times? Like I should do this and I should do this and I should do this. And then there's a giant list. Of you're still you're still limiting the things that you can be doing because you certainly shouldn't be doing the other things than what you should be doing. It's like removing choice. Yeah, totally. It's, it's so interesting to like, even for me, because I'm so consciously aware of like these words all the time, that even for me right now in this conversation, I'm starting to feel very limited just because the word should is being thrown around so frequently. <laughs> Sorry, feel if my reality is shrinking and my options are being narrow. 
Yeah. So I definitely have like the sensory experience of how it works, even though I don't know if I can quite like articulate how it, it is connected exactly quite yet. Awesome. As far as should is concerned, I like to uh, do one of two language sort of reparations or, or ways to help us to get into resourcefulness with this language. One is you add a clause at the end. Basically, either of them is going to amount to the same thing. We're going to add a want. We're going to find some kind of want behind the should. So we're either going to replace the should with the want to language, or we're going to say I should in order to, or I have to in order to, or I need to in order to. And then what happens after that in order to is going to be something that you want in the world. We should probably move on to the next word. <laughs> okay, so going on down the list, we have makes me or other passive language. It seems a really useful one to recognize. Yeah, it, it has felt really empowering to me to remove the term like makes me from my mm. language. Um, yeah. Even though like, grammatically, sometimes it's it's kind of a really difficult. challenge to figure <laughs> out. Like, how can I say this instead and still mean the same thing? Um, yeah. But I think that the benefits of that is that now I am, from my reality, I am always positioning myself as the creator. I'm right. not the one the things happen to. So like, it, it's not that it makes me angry. It's that I, I get angry with that thing. And it's, I can open it. I get angry because I don't like it. And so now I'm at choice because then I get to choose to either be around that thing or not be around the thing. I move me because I'm the creator of that emotion. Versus if I say that thing made me angry, well, then the solutions that I start considering in my brain are like, well, that thing should stop. That thing should go somewhere else. And the problem is with that thing. And they now a victim of it. And unless that thing decides to go away and get out of my reality, I just have to keep experiencing anger because that thing makes me angry. And this can be really a difficult language pattern for some people to adopt <clears throat> because this makes me language is serving the purpose of gaining power in our reality sometimes. So we use makes me because a lot of times that's like a certain kind of social leverage on someone else. Like, you know, think of the teacher saying, Billy, you know, it makes Susie really sad when you take her pencil. So don't take her pencil. There's like a certain kind of social leverage that happens there. It's like an influence. And so there are many people who use this, this particular language pattern to do a lot of heavy lifting in their relationships with other people. And they might be listening to this right now and going like, whoa, like it really does make me mad when somebody says that or I really it really does make me sad when, you know, my boyfriend cheats on me or when my boss yells at me or whatever the story is like, that's OK. First and foremost, it's OK. Rome wasn't built in a day. The challenge with this one and the thing that I think is really important is that what you're trading when you use this language. So you're you're getting some kind of influence in the world or getting some sort of social leverage. But what you're trading for that is your power, your ability to be at choice in your reality. And that is, for me, that's not a worthwhile trade. Because even with this language, you can't count on somebody else to do what you want them to do. And anytime they then don't, you are now a victim of your circumstances. And you, you're you like sort of, the way I think of it is like holding your good feelings hostage contingent on other people's behavior and <laughs> good behavior. As we're talking about this, I'm becoming aware that, you know, if, if I get angry when that thing happens, my choices are to like not be around that thing. But also I can just choose a different emotion if I'm the creator of my emotion. Mm. And man, is there any other higher source of power in our world than 
becoming aware that we really have choice of emotion and that like other people out there doing stuff doesn't actually have to make me feel anything like I choose. It's so empowering. Yeah. I personally, I like, I totally agree with you. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because I can hear people out there saying, um, but wait, you know, like, don't fall victim to the cult of positive psychology or the cult of positivity or whatever, you know, like, sure. you know, don't deny your emotions. And I just want to be really clear with what we're saying here. We're not advocating that you deny your emotions. That's not at all what we're meaning by this. What we're saying is you choose the emotions that you want to experience. Okay. Yeah. So that doesn't mean it's always happiness and sunshine and, and daisies, right? Sometimes we actually want to feel more meaningful emotions. Sometimes we might want to consciously be angry. Sometimes we might consciously want to be sad. And it is perfectly fine to experience any emotion that you want to in the world, okay? The thing that we're advocating here, though, is for your choice over which emotions you want to experience. So we're not saying deny or repress any of your emotions for the sake of feeling happy, we're saying be deliberate with your thoughts so that you can choose the emotions that you want. Yeah. I, I think another way of saying this, that is it, instead of trying to go out and try to control or compel all the things that make you experience certain emotions, which Herculean tasks or Sisyphean even really, like, could you ever go out and like, compel everybody to act exactly as you want? Or might it be more effective to have the kind of experiences you are in the world if you practice having the emotions that you want? And I think that that comes from a place of acknowledging that emotions are something that we create. And yeah, like it can be really difficult to like in a second change our emotions, and that's definitely not what we're talking about. But it takes practice being, anyway. It can be that. Yeah, it takes so exactly. It takes so much practice to cultivate this, but it's really, really empowering to just adopt language other than it makes me um, as, as a way to train your brain to notice that you are at control you are not at the effect of the world yeah and it's the same thing with you know we're using makes me but there's a lot of other language that is like this there's like it's like a passive voice language so things happen to me um so if you find yourself putting other people in or other things in the subject of your sentence and you in the object of your sentence that's just something to notice it's called passive voice for a reason. It means you're like out of control in your reality when you're using that language. My analogy for this is like, you're actually driving the car, but you're sitting in the passenger seat pretending that you're not. And your hands are on the steering wheel and your feet are on the, the gas and the brakes. And so that's, that's really what's happening. You're even the one speaking and yet things are happening to you. That's something to become aware of so that you can have a little bit more power and freedom in your world. Let's talk about alternate language here for this. So instead of makes me, it's uh, when blank happens, I feel angry is a, is a way to do that. Basically, you can still say the thing is happening and I'm angry. It's just not attributing the cause of your anger to that thing because the cause of your anger is you're thinking about the thing and you have a say in that. And we can talk about that in a different podcast, but you can take our word for it right now. Just putting you in the subject of the sentence instead of mm -hmm. the object, essentially. Exactly. Actually, this is a really great conversation. It is taking a little bit longer than I thought it would. So why don't we wrap for this? And you know what we'll do is a part two for everyone, because there are four more of these uh, language patterns to be on the lookout for that you can go check out in our next week's episode of the Shift to Freedom podcast. So thanks so much for the conversation page. And thanks to everyone else for listening. Live your freedom. Love your life. 
Hey there, shifters. If you enjoy the podcast and you've been wanting to take your game to the next level, you might want to hear about our new program. We're calling it The Mindset Gym, and it's a virtual community where we take all the tips, tricks, and strategies, and we put them into practice. Ever notice how when you go to an exercise class, you always seem to push a little harder than when you work out on your own? Well, The Mindset Gym is like a group exercise class for your business. Imagine a community of badass business owners coming together a couple of times a month to work on their mindsets, strategies, and find some business besties. It's all about practicing together. Sound like something you might want to be a part of? Check out the link in the show notes or go to lucidshiftcoaching.com forward slash the dash mindset dash gym to learn more. Thanks so much for listening to the Shift to Freedom podcast. If you want to get the most out of your time here, think about this. What's the one thing from this episode that resonated the most for you? Asking that simple question can help anchor in your insights and remember who you want to be. If there was even a single thought in today's episode that helps you to become even 1% more free, then we are thrilled. If so, would you do us a favor? We're on a mission to spread the message of freedom and we could use your help. See, the algorithms love it when we get reviews, shares, comments, and likes, and then that helps other people like you to find the podcast and just maybe change their lives. So if you like what we're doing and you want to generate some positive karma for the day, please write us a review wherever you get your podcast love. See you next week. And in the meantime, live your freedom and love your life.